So here we are, we're start starting the title page of the Tanya. Classically, this is where we start from because who else but the Alter Rebbe to introduce his own work? But to think about what the Tanya is, you know, I was like trying to say, maybe we do some introduction to explain what the Tanya is. And I was reminded of the story. <coughs> the Alter Rebbe published the Tanya first in bits. It wasn't actually published. There were circulating manuscripts and it was anonymous. And when he finally decided to bring it to the printing press, he still was going to publish it anonymously. And he was getting approbations from some of his friends, his colleagues from the Magad of Mezrich. And one of them was the famous Rav Zusha of Anapoli, who people just see kind of as simple. But the Alter Rebbe addressed to him a letter, the Gaon, the great genius. And for somebody of the Alter Rebbe's caliber to call Rav Zusha a Gaon means that he truly was a Gaon. And he sent his chassid to get an approbation from Reb Zusha. And he said, one of the conditions is that the Alter Rebbe does not want his name written in here. He wants to publish it anonymously. And he said, no, I'm going to write his name. And he said, well, if you write his name, I have explicit instructions not to accept your approbation. And so he said, okay, fine, I won't write his name. Anyway, everybody's going to find out who did it. Who else but Zalmanke, that's what he called the Alter Rebbe, who else could write the Tanya? And then he started to write, and he said to the Chassid, is this enough? Bring me paper. And so he said to the chassid, is this going to be enough? Bring me more paper. And he said, is that going to bring me enough? Bring me more and more and more paper. And then he said, how much paper you're going to bring me, I will not have enough room to write the praises of the author of this work. Just bring me a quarter sheet of paper. And that to me is very educational. Like, you know, we can talk about what the Tana is for days, for years, forever. Let the author of it introduce his own work. What's so unique about the Tanya is that it's the first and in many ways the only kind of book of its kind. It is a systematic approach to Hasidus, which actually really evoked the ire not just of people who were against the Baal Shem Tov and the teachings of Hasidus, but even from among the Baal Shem Tov students, people had a problem with that. They said, how could you make such a systematic intellectual approach something so spiritual? And why are you making this available to such a wide audience? And indeed, that caused even spiritual issues for the Alter Rebbe. The Tanya was published in 1796. The Alter Rebbe has 53 chapters, the first part. The Alter Rebbe, under false accusations of supporting the enemies of the Russians, was imprisoned in 1798 for 53 days, corresponding to the 53 chapters of the Tanya. When he was in prison, he was visited by the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad of Mezrich, who were no longer in this world. And he said, what is the accusation against me? He said, you're spreading too much. And he said, okay, so should I stop? He said, no. Once you're released from prison, now you know that you have the approval from heaven to continue spreading this work. You'll have to spread it and spread it. And in fact, this was following the model of his own teacher, the Magad of Mezrich, who was spreading Hasidus to a wider audience than many of his colleagues would have liked. And one day, his colleague, the holy Rapinchatz Karitzer, found a sheet of chassidus laying in the gutter. And he picked it up and he was so upset that such holy writing would have been in the street. And because of that, he was upset, a person of such a holy caliber, this was dangerous for the Magad of Mezrich. And the Alter Rebbe, this was the Magad student, quickly came to appease Rapinchatz Karitzer and he said to him, I'm going to give you a parable. The king had an only son who was deathly ill, and there was nothing that can cure him. And finally, they realized that there's one glimmer of hope, and that is the king's 
crown jewel. If they're going to take his crown jewel, grind it up to dust, and get it into his mouth, he will survive. And they were afraid to tell the king about it, but when the king heard about it, he said, of course, what wouldn't I spare for my only child? So they actually took out the crown jewel from the king's crown, ground it into dust. The prince's mouth was sealed shut, so it was spilling out, but a tiny little drop went into his mouth, and it saved his life. And he said, you're finding these papers in the street. That's what's falling out of the prince's mouth, but it's for the survival of the Jewish people. We need it. In fact, you know, when someone faints, you call their name and it wakes them up. What's the name of the Jewish people? Yisrael. What is the name of the Baal Shem Tov? Yisrael. The Jewish people were so downtrodden from all the terrible pogroms, from and they were in a state of faint. And Hashem whispered into our ear, Yisrael, by sending us the Baal Shem Tov. And his student's student, the Altarever called him his grandfather because he was his teacher's teacher, so his spiritual grandfather, came and took these words, these holy teachings, and committed them to writing, which again was a huge deal because Hasidus was spread master to student. It was spread orally. To have written this down was considered to be dangerous. In fact, they tell a story of the Baal Shem Tov that he once had a dream that a demon was walking in front of him. He's carrying a book. And he said, wait, whose book are you holding? He said, I'm holding your book. He said, I don't have a book. I never wrote anything. When he woke up the next morning, he gathered his students and he said, have ever, any of you been committing my teachings to writings? And one of the students said, yes, me. So he said, let me see it. He starts looking through the book and he said, there is not one word of what I said in here. Now, of course, he was writing down what his teacher said. But there's a very different way of accepting something when it's written and when it's delivered orally. And the Altar is going to tell us that because to write a book like this is something that the Altar Rebbe thought about. He didn't take this decision lightly. It was a huge decision. It was earth-changing, literally, but it was something that to be weighed. Is this something that I can do? Can I write a book like this? Is this okay? So Rebbe Zusha said, he said, how did he manage to put such a great God into such a small book? And that is the Tanya. The Tanya is not only one of the greatest works of Hasidus, and in many ways, it's the only work of its kind because it's a systematic work on Hasidus. There was never a systematic work on Hasidus before. Rabbi Steinzels compares it to the way that the Rambam wrote his Mishnah Torah. The Ram, until then, people used to write like commentaries on other commentaries, right? Like there's the Talmud, that's a commentary on the Mishnah. You write according to the Parsha of the week. But the Rambam just wrote his own structure from the beginning to the end. He was very unapologetic. He said, all you're going to have to do is you're going to have to read the written Torah, and then you could read my book and you don't have to read anything in between. <laughs> Because he, what he did was, he compiled everything from the oral Torah and he put it into a systematic approach. You'll see in the Alter Rebbe's compiler's forward, as Rabbi Stanislaus points out, he's more apologetic when he writes that, but it's the same idea of making a systematic work that really never existed. It's not only a, an incredible work of Hasidus, it's actually an incredible work of Musar, ethical teaching. But what makes it so different from all other works of ethical teaching is it doesn't talk about specific problems. You know, question, answer, question, answer. It's a whole different approach. It's this broad perspective. You're actually getting a bird's eye view of the universe and of the inner workings of your soul. And from that perspective, you can kind of look and analyze anything. Instead, you know, sometimes you read a specific problem. It sounds interesting to you. You're like, oh, but it doesn't apply to me. There's nothing about the Tanya that doesn't apply to us. It's literally the inner workings of our soul and realizing 
that everything, every single problem a person encounters literally stems, you can look at thousands of complexities and struggles and doubts. It's all an expression of a simple, basic problem. Just one problem. The struggle of good and evil within ourselves. That's it. That's what everything could be summed down to. And the Alter Rebbe is going to teach us and train our eye and how to look at the inner workings of the soul, look at the universe, and be able to identify. He considers himself just a compiler. He doesn't consider himself an author. So he says it's a compilation. And Amarim, they translated here as teachings, but it actually means sayings. He's saying, this that I'm giving you right now are things that I've said to people when we had a private audience. Hanikra B'Shem, which is entitled Sefer Shel Benonim. The Book of the Intermediates. So this idea, Sefer Shalbenonim, the Book of the Intermediates, that's what the Alter Rebbe called the Tanya. Lakutia Marim, Sefer Shalbenonim. Where does the name Tanya come from? Actually, Tanya is the first word of chapter one. And that's the name that stuck. But what is the book called? What did the Alter Rebbe call it? He called it the Book of the Benonim. Now, this idea of the Benoni is a huge breakthrough innovation. Because if you look at what was the expectation before the Tanya, general works of Musar, is that everyone has to be a tzaddik. If you have any kind of inner struggle and you haven't yet overcome your evil side, your dark nature, then you just have to resolve this right now. You have to get past it, but everybody must be a tzaddik. If you're still struggling, you're in a bad space. The Altar came along and said, not everybody could be a tzaddik. It's just not possible even for most people. You have to behave like a tzaddik. You have to think like a tzaddik. You have to speak like a tzaddik. You have to act like a tzaddik. But to say that you're going to resolve that inner conflict, you're going to get away with it, not everybody has that choice. So some people, it was a choice. It was like, either I'm going to be a hypocrite or I'm just going to delude myself. I'm going to like have these inner struggles, but pretend I don't. Or I'm going to say, no, I'm a tzaddik, I'm wonderful, and pretend that I really am, even to myself. So, are we, are they born tzaddik? Yes, there are born tzaddikim. We say there are 38, I can't, 36. Tzaddikim, they are born that way. They're born with the potential. So some people are born with the potential of a tzaddik, very few. This is something that we're going to visit at length in chapter one. But most people, so yes, some people are born with the capacity to be a tzaddik, but most people don't have that capacity. So on an external level, we all have to behave like a tzaddik. On an internal level, we need to realize that we have different moments. We have moments where we're literally attached to Hashem. And when we feel that attachment, that is our truth of truths. And then we have those moments where we don't feel the connection and we have a struggle and the world seems so prominent and important to us. And even though that doesn't define us, but that's also our truth. And in no way should that take away from the fact that we have an ideal way of living. And that is the way of the Benoni who is perfect like a tzaddik. And in certain ways, a Benoni is even on a higher level than a tzaddik because a tzaddik doesn't have to struggle. They have a different path in life. So somebody who struggles and overcomes is even higher than a tzaddik. So this is the new ideal, the ideal of the Benoni. Compiled from sacred books and from teachers of heavenly saintliness 
whose souls are in Aden. Again, he says, I'm not the originator of this work. This is stuff that I got from my teachers. Who are my teachers? They are the Baal Shem Tov. They are the Magad of Mezrich. Some people also count the Magad of Mezrich's son, Rabbi Avraham the Malach, he was called, because he was so out of this world. I mean, the Baal Shem Tov, the, they used to study together. They were Chavrusas, the Alter Rebbe and the Malach, Rabbi Avraham the Malach. His father set them up to learn together. So he told to the Alter Rebbe, you teach my son Nigla, the exoteric parts of Torah, you know, Talmud and all the halacha, and he will teach you the secrets of the Torah. And they had this arrangement where they would, and the Alter Rebbe actually used to switch the clock because he wanted to learn more. <laughs> and he said, those stolen hours that I had were all the more sweet. You know, call, call, <laughs> call upon the words of Shlomo Hamel who said, Mayim genuvim yumtaku. Stolen waters are sweet. So he used to steal time. He actually saved his life because once they were learning and Rabbi Avram the Malach got into a such state of ecstasy that the altar quickly served him a bagel and butter to just keep him down here. So those were his teachers. And who are the books that he's talking about? He's talking about the works of the Maharal, who actually the Altarab is a seventh generation descendant from the Maharal of Prague. And also the works of Rabbi Yeshaya Halevi Horowitz, the, sh- the Shla. His work is Shnei Luchais Habris, and it's known by the initials Shin Lam and Hey, which is the Shla. So where did I get all this that I'm writing in the book? I got it from my teachers. I got it from books. The Baal Shem Tov, the Magad of Mezrich, his son, Rabbi Avram the Malach, the Maharal, the Shla HaKadosh, and of course, all the classical Jewish works. I mean, Tanakh, Midrash, Talmud, Zohar, Shulchan Arach. All this is going to be presented in the Tanya. And what's going to blow your mind is certain ideas that you took for granted. The Alter Rebbe is going to take this, a classic Jewish idea, and he's going to shed a whole new light on it. You thought you knew what this is? You don't know what it is. Let me show you. And he's going to bring us sources from the Talmud, from Zohar, and suddenly a whole new world opens up before us. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. So the, the Tanya was written by the Alter Rebbe. It's mostly a Chabad thing. Do non-Chabads look at the Tanya and read it and look at it? Absolutely. 100%. Today, more than ever. I mean, my do- my friend just sent her daughter to a seminary in Yerushalayim, not Chabad, and they have a class in Tanya. And she said it's more and more seminaries in Israel are doing that. Um, a f- friend of mine who comes to my night Tanya class, she said her neighbor like grew up classically against Hasidus. You know, there has been this since the time of the Baal Shem Dov. And he told her, I study Tanya. There's just no other way. I don't know how somebody could keep their strength as a religious Jew today and not study Tanya. So originally, and to see how far, I mean, this is from the Zohar, to see how far the teachings of Hasidus have spread to, that everybody learns it and relates to. Of course, there's going to be those staunch people who tenaciously don't want to, you know. But there's always been opposition to something important for whatever reason, you know. But today, the study of Tanya has spread throughout the world. Why did he write this book? Based on the verse from the Torah. For this thing is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Explaining clearly how it is exceedingly near. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, this mitzvah that I am commanding you today, and commentaries explain either it's the whole Torah or it's the mitzvah of Teshuvah, is not far removed from you. It's not distant. 
It says, he says, It's not across the ocean that you're going to say, who's going to go across the ocean and get it? It's not in the skies. It's not in the heavens that someone has to climb into the heavens to get it for you. You know where it is? For this matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. So we're going to say the Torah is very near to us in our mouth that we can choose to speak only words that are aligned with the will of Hashem. And I'm not going to say it's easy, of course. I mean, we all know that to control our mouth could be very difficult, but we do have the choice. There's that moment of choosing your response. Again, our behavior. We have to keep everything the Torah tells us to do. We have to abstain from those things that the Torah says don't do them. But behavior is very much a choice. What about our heart? Is it really so easy for us to switch the feelings of our heart from lusting after the temptations of this world, from running after every vanity that there is, every billboard and every advertisement, they're all there trying to get us, you know. Levi Yitzchak Mubaradish just said to Hashem, Hashem, why did you do it this way? All the temptations of the world, you put it on the street, and heaven and hell, you hid it in a little book called Reish's Chachma. I'm telling you, if you would have put all the temptations of the world inside a little book, and heaven and hell right out there on the street, no one would sin. <laughs> But that's not how it is. All the temptations of the world are literally right out there. Who isn't, who isn't distracted by them? It makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I have to have it. Alter was going to talk about that later on in chapter 14. But you just, you feel like you have to have it. So to take your heart and switch it from the temptations of this world, instead to just love Hashem. That's what your heart is going to be about. My heart is going to be only about loving Hashem. My heart is going to be only about fear of Hashem. I mean, the author brings up this question in chapter 17. He says, In your heart, apparently that's contrary to our experience. To have control over our heart, that we can literally transform our heart to love Hashem. How is that possible? And the author says, I'm going to explain this to you. The whole book is here for this. The Torah's program for life is accessible for you. Not just the way you speak, not just the way you act, your heart is very much within reach that you can transform it for loving and fearing Hashem. Bederach aruka uketzara, in both a lengthy and a short way. So I'm going to explain this to you in the long and short way. What does that mean, the long and short way? This calls upon the story from the Talmud from Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania was brilliant. He was one of the most genius scholars of all time. The Roman emperor used to call him into his palace just to discuss with him, just to debate with him. And he said, no one ever got the better of me besides for one woman, one boy, and one girl. And who was the little boy? The little boy was sitting on a rock at a crossroads. Rabbi Shua ben Hanania was trying to get to the city, and suddenly there was a fork in the road. And he said, little boy, which road leads to the city? He said, oh, they both lead to the city. This is the short and long way, and this is the long and short way. He said, short and long, that sounds good. So he takes the short way, which is the long way, because he can't get into the city. So he gets back and he said, little boy, didn't you tell me it was the short way? He said, and didn't I also tell you it was the long way? So Rabbi Shubhan Hanani kissed him on the head and he said, look how wise the Jewish people are. Even their very small ones have so much wisdom. And then he took the other way, the long but short way. It took him longer to get there. But when he got there, he actually arrived. And that's the way of the Tanya. It's not just bursts of inspiration. You know, sometimes you hear those like bursts of inspiration and you're changed for an hour, for a day, for a week, and then same old. 
Why? You know those parenting books that are just so amazing and they work for a couple of days and then they're trash? <laughs> Why? Because they haven't pervaded our personality. That's the short, long way. It's short, but long because it's just never been changed. It's a fad diet. It's not a lifestyle change. The way of the Tanya is very different. The way of the Tanya is long. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to think about Hashem's greatness. You're really going to have to meditate. But once you take the things that you know, concentrate and focus on them, your heart will be changed. That is the way of the Tanya. The way of the Tanya is very different than methods that people were used to. In general, all the inspiration of Hasidus, people relied a lot on the tzaddik. They would say, v'tzaddik yechya. The tzaddik will live by his faith. They would say, Don't just read it, he will live. You should also read it as he will enliven others. So you hang around that tzaddik, you will be so inspired, that will bring you love and awe of Hashem. And that's 100% true, but that's not the end all. That's just something to help. But to truly, truly change, it can't just be about the tzaddik. It has to be about you. In fact, there's a story of the Alter Rebbe where a chassid of his lived in the same town as a chassid of the Alter Rebbe's colleague, Rabbi Chaim Chaikel of Amdor. So the Alter Rebbe and Chaim Chaikel were both students of the Magad of Mezrich. The student of the Alter Rebbe came to complain. He said, you know, we both go to the same shul to daven. He gets the shul, like instantly almost. He's fired up and the way he davens is incredible. Er Brent, he's burning. But me? First I have to learn, then I have to meditate, and then finally, finally I call up some level of inspiration, and then I can daven. Why is that fair? And the altar took him very seriously. He leaned his head on his hands and he said, Er Brent, he's burning. Chaikel Brent in M. It's Chaikel that's burning in him. I want you that when you're on flame with love of Hashem, it should be your own flame that's burning. And for us to have our own flame that's burning, we're going to have to do our own work, our own study, our own meditation. Ignorance is not bliss. <laughs> I saw this bumper sticker. It said, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Please don't try ignorance. <laughs> that's not the way of the Tanya. The way of the Tanya is Chabad. Chachma, Bina, and Da'as. Take those three intellectual faculties so that you can channel your emotions and change them. That literally is the way of the Tanya. Be'ezras Hashem Yisbarich, with the aid of the Holy One, blessed be He. So these words, with the aid of the Holy One, blessed be He, it could be understood in two ways. Either the altar was saying, I'm writing this book with the help of Hashem, or he's saying, I'm teaching you this method. It's the long and short way with the help of Hashem. Because on one hand, it's like so daunting. The altar was saying, you're going to have to work hard. You think you're going to rely on me? No, I'll teach you, but you're going to have to do the hard work. Elder says, don't worry, Hashem helps you. You know, in America, we like to say self-made man. There's no such thing as a self-made man. Anybody who says they're a self-made man is ego-centered. There are parents who raised you. There's a network of friends that supported you. There's a good society that helped you. Nobody is a self-made man. True, we have to work hard, but to think that we're self-made? No, it's going to be Be'ezra Hashem Yisbarich with the help of Hashem. And that reminds me of such a heartening passage of Talmud that I learned recently from Gemara Sukkah, where Rabbi Yechanan says that if not for these three verses from the Torah, which means that the 
legs of the enemies of the Jews would collapse. Now, because he doesn't want to say the Jews, God forbid. So a lot of times when the Talmud wants to say something bad that God forbid may occur, they say, for the enemies of the Jewish people. And it's a euphemism for the Jewish people themselves. And it brings three verses that show that our hearts are in the hands of Hashem. The last one is about Hashem changing, taking out our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. So yes, we have to work hard. And freedom of choice, as the Ram writes in Hilchas Teshuvah, is a fundamental of Jewish belief. If someone would say there's no freedom of choice, then what value is there to having commands and reward and punishment? There's, that makes no sense. Freedom of choice is a basic value of Judaism. Yet we have to remember Hashem helps us. And even Hashem transforms our hearts. So lucky us because look how Hashem really does. We have to do our work, but Hashem really does take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Some Hasidic scholars look at this work and they say, Bederach Aruka Uketzara, the long and short way. And they say, well, the Tanya actually has two ways. The Tanya has a long way and the Tanya has a short way. What's the long way? It's the way that's described up until and specifically in chapters 16 and 17, where the altar says, you need to use your mind to generate and produce new emotions that you didn't have. So that's difficult. You have to create something that you didn't have before. And then there's a short way where you don't have to create anything new. You already, as we'll visit in chapter 18, have an innate love for Hashem that you couldn't get on your own and you can't do away with if you want to. Every Jewish person, no matter who they are, no matter how lowly they've become, innately loves Hashem. Innately loves Hashem. And that is the short way. You don't have to create anything new. Being able to just uncover, you don't have to create anything new. But actually the Rebbe in a talk says, well, you could interpret it that way. That's not the straight out interpretation. When the author of it says the long and short way, he means one way. It's the long and short way. The way Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it is the longer way is the shorter way. So, you know, sometimes you rely on like bursts of inspiration. It's just a shortcut. It doesn't get you anywhere. You're going to be back at square one. Here, it's going to take time and time. It could take an entire lifespan. And even though somebody may never be able to become a tzaddik, through our efforts, we do experience change. There's a big difference between saying, well, I don't think I can become a tzaddik, so what's the point? Or saying, you know what, I'm going to try. And wherever we are, and we really apply this work, an inner transformation does occur. So sometimes I hear people say, you know, Tanya, I mean, the ideals are so high and they're so hard to reach, like, I don't know if it's for me. Anybody ever says that to me, I know for certain that they never actually studied the Tanya. You know, it's very easy to like read a couple of things here and say, yeah, yeah, look what he says. Like you have to be perfect even in your thought. You can't even entertain a thought that Hashem doesn't like. I mean, seriously, not for me. And if you willingly entertain a negative thought, then you're a wicked person. Oh, forget it. Like, like what do you expect? If you really go through the Tanya, you read its words carefully, you study the ideas, you realize that the Tanya is literally speaking to your heart. And that's what the altar was going to tell us, actually, in his compiler's foreword. So here's the compiler's foreword. Before the compiler's foreword in the Tanya, there are three approbations. There's the approbation from Rav Zushav Anapoli, the approbation from Yehuda Leib HaKohen. Both of these were colleagues of the Alter Rebbe. And the third approbation is from the Alter Rebbe's sons. They pu published the Tanya after the Alter Rebbe already passed away, and they put an approbation in as well, and plus, plus a warning not to publish 
the book for five years from the date of printing as not to cause financial damage to the people who published the book. So there were three approbations and now we have the compilers forward. And I really love this part of it, Tanya, because you realize how in tune the Altareva is with each of us and how this is the most progressive work of human psychology. He literally like looks at us and tells us and he's, he's going to make an argument why a book like this should never be written. A book like this just cannot be written. And then he's going to say, and here is why I wrote this book. <laughs> and when he says a book like this should not be written, he's actually making the case for his Hasidim. Why did he write this book? What was this letter about? It's not an introduction to the book. The introduction to the book is the title page, right? He said, this is the book and tighter, titled and it's based on this verse and it's for my teachers. That's the introduction to the work. My whole work is here to explain this verse in the Torah. So what's this letter about? This letter was a request from the Alter Rebbe to his students saying, please accept this book instead of a private audience with me. The Alter Rebbe students became so numerous. It was very... Impossible. It was basically impossible for him to give a private audience to each of his students. Now, classically, Hasidim had a private audience with the Rebbe. That was, that was a special relationship where it's not just I read a book. I have someone who knows me, who sits with me. I can bear my soul to him. And he's going to say, I see that your path is like this. And this is your struggle. And this is what you do. And the author was saying, can't do that anymore. So I'm giving you this book instead of Yechidus. Please accept this book instead of Yechidus. Well, you can imagine how well that went down. <laughs> I mean, who wants to give a private audience with the Rebbe, right? A book instead? How did that work? So the altar is going to make the case. He's going to say, I know why you think this can't be instead of a private audience. And in fact, I know why a book of this nature should never be written. These certain things are supposed to be written. Certain things are supposed to be handed down only teacher to student. And so he's going to explain why a book in this, of this nature, of a private audience, of a personal relationship, of understanding each person at an individual level, that simply can't be done. And for us as parents, as educators, as friends, it's really an important lesson. Because if you want to teach something or give a breakthrough idea to somebody close to you who doesn't see things the way you see it, but you're older, you're wiser, you're more experienced... And you know that this is the right thing for them. You first have to be able to see things from where they are coming from. You have to be able to make their case even better than they can. That's what the author is doing here. He's saying, you, you want a private audience with me, right? You think a book isn't enough. I'm going to tell you exactly where you're coming from and why a book really isn't enough. I mean, what a lesson for us. Like, you know, we want to understand people who are close to us and may see things differently. And we need to help and give education. I mean, sometimes we're wrong, you know. But when we're right and we know that we're, there's a, a message here, we first have to be able to argue their case better than they can. And that's what the author was doing right now. As we have seen from the title page, the author perceives himself as a mere compiler rather than as an author. Hakdamas hamalakit, compilers forward. Being a letter sent to all Anash, members of our fellowship, meaning the Chassidim, may Hashem, our stronghold, bless and guard them. Alechem Ishim Ekra, to you worthy men do I call. Listen to me, 
You who pursue righteousness, who seek God, and may the Almighty listen to you, both great in spiritual stature and small. All Anash in our land, in nearby communities, Anash means Anshay Shlomenu, the men of our fellowship. So people of our community, this is who I'm talking to. Ish Amen Kenyahi Rasain. May each in his own place achieve peace and eternal life. Amen. May it be his will. May this be his will. And interestingly, he says, Alechem Ishim Ekra, to you worthy men do I call. How often do you see the word Ishim? Like Ish is singular, and Ashim is plural. The word Ishim means I'm addressing you in the plural, but I'm actually addressing you individually. This is an individual book. This is something that when, I, when you read this book, know that I'm talking individually to you. So what's really amazing, if we think about it, that anytime we're studying Tanya, we are actually having a private audience with the Alter Rebbe. And to think, I mean, to truly understand the ideas of the Tanya, you know, you grapple with it. There's a story of, the previous Rebbe tells a story of a very strong-minded chassid. His name was Rabbi Shmuel Barshai. He used to t- tutor children. He was brilliant, though, and it came to a point where people realized what a genius he is. So the wealthy men in his community used to hire him to private tutor them. And he said, anybody who studies a chapter of Tanya and says, oh, I know this fully, I know this well, is the same as somebody who studies a passage from the Torah and says, I understood it as well as when it was given on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai. Somebody who dares to speak like that is a heretic. So... Yes, we're going to understand, but there's going to be things that we have to realize there's so much more beyond, so much more beyond us. And we're having this special opportunity of the Alter Rebbe, through the medium of this book, speak to us individually. How does that even happen? Because it seems to be impossible, and that's what he's going to tell us. It is well known that all Anash are wont to say, that hearing words of moral guidance from a teacher addressing his student individually and directly is not the same as seeing and reading such guidance in books, which are impersonal and addressed to the reading audience at large. The spoken word will have a far greater effect than the written word for two reasons. So there is an expression, hearing is not like seeing. The way that expression is used is if you see something, has a far greater impact on you than if you just hear about it. If you actually saw something, I can't talk you out of it. I I saw it. You're going to talk me out of it, but I saw it. If you hear about something, I could talk you out of it, or I could try, and it may work. Because you can't compare if someone actually had a firsthand experience of seeing something to if they only heard about it. But here the author was taking this expression and flipping it around. You can't compare seeing, reading things in a book, which is not so effective, as hearing it from your mentor. If your mentor sits with you and hears your issues and knows of your struggles and then gives you direction, that's so much more impactful and helpful than if you just read some advice in a book, you know, self-help book. That's very good, but how far does that take you? What about if you have a wise leader of the Jewish people sit with you, somebody who is, walks the paths of the heavens and is able to see where your soul comes from and says, this is what you need to do and this is how you deal with that struggle. How can you compare that to reading about it in a book? There's two reasons why a book may not work for you. The first is, 
For the reader who gains such instruction in books will read it after his own manner and mind. And will absorb the written message according to his mental grasp and comprehension at that particular time. So here, the book may not work because of the reader's issues. What's his issues? It depends where he is. That's how he reads the book. We think, see things not the way they are. We see things the way we are. And depending where we are spiritually, mentally, emotionally, that's how we will experience the book. So the book may have all the great advice, but when we read it, we see something very different. I mean, Daniel Kahneman talks about the priming effect. You know, if somebody was exposed to the word eat, and then he's given a word with a blank to fill in, S-O blank P, he will naturally fill in U for soup. If he's first exposed to the word wash, then when he gets that same word to fill out, S-O, he's going to put A-P, soap. Whatever you've been exposed to first is how you see things afterwards. You know that experiment of showing the same picture to two groups of people. But depending on what picture they've seen before that picture is what they see in the picture that they see. So there's an old woman and a young woman. They're both in the same picture. But if you saw the picture of the old woman first, you look at that picture, right away you see the old woman. If you saw the young woman first, you look at that picture, right away you see the young woman. So you see there's an inherent problem. The inherent problem is we can't get past our natural prejudices. We can't get past our natural way of seeing things. People just see things differently. Everybody sees according to their own way. How this great story, my father-in-law once flew on a carrier plane and he told us of his experience and he said, you know, the lower, the higher you fly, the less turbulence you experience because carrier planes fly very low and they're very turbulent. So I was very moved and I was telling two of my very spiritual, abstract sisters. My father-in-law said that the higher you fly, the less turbulence you experience. And they're like, whoa. Now we're in the middle of talking and my younger, super practical sister comes by and says, what are you guys talking about? You look so high. <laughs> and I'm like, my father-in-law said that the higher you fly, the less turbulence you experience. And she's like, okay, and so what? Like, it's just about what altitude you're flying at. Simple as that. It just depends on how your mind works. Some people, their mind immediately goes deep. They don't even see the app, the superficial stuff or the important basic facts. And some people first see the basic facts and only after training and teaching do they go and see things deeper. It's very interesting that you don't necessarily have to first see the superficial before you see the deeper. Some people first see the deeper and only afterwards see the superficial. And it's literally about the way your mind works. So it could be a natural temperament. It could be the way you were educated. It could be what you just saw an hour ago. All those things affect you that you're reading this book, which literally could change your life. And when you're reading it, you're seeing soap and soup, nothing that actually is meant to be conveyed in that book. Hence, if his intellect and mind are confused and wander about in darkness, in ideas pertaining to the service of Hashem, he will find it difficult to see the beneficial light hidden in books. So there's two problems here. We'll have an intellectual kink. And the other thing is, wander about in darkness and ideas pertaining to the service of Hashem. He will have a spiritual kink. So what could be this person's issue? Some people have 
an intellectual kink. So they may be able to think clearly in certain areas. In other areas, their mind just can't get it. They have an intellectual limitation. Other people may be intellectually brilliant, but when it comes to spiritual matter, serving Hashem, they have a serious kink. They just don't get it. They could be brilliant and spiritually very insensitive. And I'm going to repeat something that I, I like. I don't know who may or may not find this offensive, but it's I just mind blowing for me. A friend of mine was telling me that she was teaching a class, and she talked about the moral dilemma that is often presented about if someone was on a shipwreck and they can only save their dog or a human stranger, who would they save? And she said, I mean, obviously, you would save the human stranger. And people in her class who she likes, who are kind, they're like, no, they would save their dog. And it was so unsettling for her to think that normal people, good-hearted, would say that. But because there is a spiritual kink. Somebody who is spiritually in tune knows that Hashem wants you to save a human being, even if you love the dog very much. The most interesting part of the story, though, is that one of the ladies actually put her dog to sleep not too long after that. So it just makes you wonder. But the person could be spiritually so in the dark, even if intellectually they're brilliant. So you can think about the most brilliant mathematician and scientist who, when they see ideas, everything is lucid to them. They can have an Einstein's mind. But when it comes to spirituality, they're stuffed up. So they're looking at this book. This book literally can help them. This book can be what guides them to connect with Hashem. And yet, they can't see it. Why can't they see it? Well, either they have an intellectual kink or they have a spiritual kink. And therefore, it's very difficult for them to see the light of Hashem that is hidden in this farm. What is this light of Hashem that is hidden? So actually, if you look at the account of creation, the Torah tells us, Vayar Elohim Vayar Elohim and Hashem saw the light and this was and it was good. This is the first day of creation. Does anybody remember what day of creation the sun and moon were created? And that was the fourth day of creation on Wednesday, which is today. The sun and the moon were created on Wednesday, so where was the light that was created on the first day? So the Talmud speaks about it, and the Talmud says that Hashem took this light and hid it away for the tzaddikim, for the righteous people. And the Zohar says, where did he hide this light? In the Torah. So think about it. Anytime we study Torah, we have access to Hashem's incredible light with which you can see from one end of the universe to the other. Even though it's present, we may not be able to access it. We may have an inherent limitation. We may not be a receptacle to it. Our mind might be confused. Our spiritual sensitivity may not be there. So yes, I'm giving you this book. It can help you, but it may not be able to help you because you can't access the light. That's problem number one. Although this light be pleasant to the eyes and healing for the soul, in the case of a personal guidance, on the other hand, the mentor can ensure that his message is understood fully and correctly. And the Alter Rebbe will now point out a second disadvantage in written advice. And that's what we're going to speak about next class with Rosh Hashem. So let's summarize what we said until now. We, first of all, we talked about the title page of the Tanya. The Alter Rebbe introduced this work. He called it a compilation of teachings. He called it the Book of the Intermediates, which turns out to be a whole new standard for what we are supposed to accomplish. It's not tzaddik anymore, it's the intermediate, and we're gonna talk about the intermediate as the work progresses. Where did he get it from? He got it from books, he got it from teachers, and it's based on the verse in the Torah that this matter is very near to you in your mouth 
and in your heart that you may do it. He's going to explain in a long but short way how indeed we are able to serve Hashem in our heart. Now he says, I'm giving you this book instead of a private audience with me. I know that you are indignant. You don't want to accept it. It's, this is not Hasidic tradition. You need to have a private audience with the rabbi. Well, let me tell you something. Let's first talk about why a book doesn't work. Well, a book may not work for a few reasons, but the first reason is the person. I may give you the best book in the world, the book that has the light of Hashem hidden in it, a book that if you read it, it is it is literally sweet to the eyes and healing for your soul. But you may not get it because you have a kink. Either your mind doesn't get it or your spiritual sensitivity doesn't get it. So to be continued next week, Bezrat Hashem. Do you think he thought that if they had that kink through the book that they couldn't get it in person either? Well, if you sit with a mentor... Then they know what your king, if you, and they really know you, then they know, you know, this is a touchy issue. I'm not going to talk about this I'm just now. Grabbing a picture. Yes, of your let's do it. Okay. <laughs> First class. We're very excited.